You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone. Peter Maravellis here, wishing you all a happy International Women's Day. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual extension of the City Lights in-store calendar, where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums. As is customary at the outset of each event, I'd like to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Tonight, City Lights celebrates a stellar new debut by a very gifted storyteller. We are delighted to have with us Lakeisha Carr celebrating the publication of her new novel titled An Autobiography of Skin. It is published by Pantheon Books. Possessing a very rich and rhythmic writing style, Ms. Carr unveils her writing prowess as she intimately explores Black womanhood. An Autobiography of Skin is an intergenerational meditation on one's interior life, spanning the range of experience and emotion from grief to empowerment, and thinking about how experiences are carried inside the body, about memory and its nuances. So An Autobiography of Skin is a very eloquently crafted book, and we think you'll really enjoy it as much as we have here at City Light, so we're delighted to be able to celebrate it in all of its splendor. Lakeisha Carr is a journalist and writer from East Texas. She has held various editorial and production positions with CNN, the New York Times, and other media outlets. She is a graduate from the Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, and received her MFA from the IO Writers Workshop, where she was awarded a Maytag Fellowship for Excellence, as well as a Jeff and Vicki Edwards Postgraduate Fellowship in Fiction. Her writing has received support from the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Callaloo Creative Writing Workshop, the DC Commission on Arts and the Humanities for Nonfiction Writing, amongst others. Joining her this evening is Donnie Walton. Donnie Walton is the author of The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, winner of numerous prizes, including the 2022 Aspen Words Literary Prize. She is the co-founder and editorial director of URSA, an audio production company celebrating short fiction from underrepresented voices, and is the co-host of its accompanying podcast. Formerly an editor at Essence and Entertainment Weekly, she's received numerous honors for her work, including fellowships from McDowell and Tin House, amongst others. She makes her home in Brooklyn. So please join us now in giving a warm welcome to Lakeisha Carr and Donnie Walton. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter, for that wonderful introduction. And Lakeisha, congratulations on this Stunningly gorgeous, meaningful novel that has just been published to wonderful acclaim. I mean, the Lady Hubbard Review in the New York Times was just so, so beautiful. And I just want to start, you know, this conversation by asking a question that is very simple, but very sincere um, from someone who understands what a wild ride it can be to have mm -hmm. your book baby out in the world. And the question is simply, how are you doing? <laughs> I wouldn't begin to know how to answer that. But let me first say, thank you so much, Peter. That was wonderful. I appreciate you. I appreciate City Lights for having 
me and celebrating this moment. And Donnie, you know, I already said to you, and I want to say it again, I appreciate your support so much. And I appreciate the beautiful blurb and, and you provided and reading the book um, and doing this with me tonight. So I'm very grateful. So I'll start there. I am feeling incredibly grateful and also terrified. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> yeah, like my emotions, I, I, I mentioned this, you know, before the event started to both Peter and Donnie, that my emotions are sort of fluctuating, not by the day, but by the hour, by the minute. And, you know, I think that everyone who's gone through this before has been very clear that this is normal. This is a part of the process. Like this is a major moment, but still try to enjoy it. And I am. I think that when I have those sort of more quiet moments to myself, um, I feel, like I said, extremely grateful, extremely sort of, when I allow myself, feel proud of the fact that I did this because it's a scary thing. And there was a point in my life when I wasn't sure that I would actually complete a project, you know, much less see it, you know, all the way to fruition. And so, for that alone, I feel like I allow myself to have little quiet moments Good. of like, yeah, you did that, Lakeisha. Like, never mind Goodreads or anybody else. Girl, you doing that, you know? <laughs> you did that. I mean, you know, um, so yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling really grateful, most of all, and still scared. But I think I'm pushing through and excited no matter what. Yeah. There's a word that you used just now that I want to dig into a little bit, and that word is fruition. Mm -hmm. um, whenever I read a book that's this thoughtful and this meditative, um, I can't help but wonder about the journey of the writer behind it and how the writer goes from that original seed of inspiration into something that's flowering and blooming. Um, so I want to just ask you about that journey from seed to fruit um, with an autobiography of skin. How and when did the original idea for this novel manifest and, and then how the pieces of it came together? Oh, my God. Like the journey feels, especially in hindsight, it's hard to sort of pinpoint exactly. I mean, you know, you think that, you know, but the subconscious sort of like tells you at times something different. Um, I do. I will say I started writing while working as a journalist. That's when I sort of figured out that I wanted to do a different form of storytelling. Um, but I think when I came home, when I decided to come home, that I was really, really inspired after being away from home for so long. Um, I've written about this, I've told this many times, but I was a sort of small town kid who, once I turned 18, I was like out of here, right? And coming back home in my 30s felt like the weirdest sort of culture shock because it's home, right? You know, but it was also sort of like having to reimmerse and remember all the things I had consciously and subconsciously sort of suppressed to go out into the world and function in all these different environments where my accent, where I came from, like all those things had made me feel in various ways insecure or like it was necessary to sort of function and be taken seriously. Um, and sort of coming back home, it was good though to remember and be back in the community, particularly the women 
um, who raised me. And I don't just mean like, you know, family and blood relatives, but I mean like the women from my church, the women who did my hair growing up, um, the women who did activism, like all of that and their voices. And that really was sort of what started, I would say, the seed wanting to capture that, wanting to celebrate that. And I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I also think that there's a lot of influence in the book as well from a lot of the women and people I encountered while working as a journalist, you know? So I think yeah. that the book ultimately became a fusion of sorts of like all these different people I've encountered over the years. But the heart of it is certainly um, the women of East Texas. It's the women in my family. It's the women in my community. It's my own voice that had been like, girl, I can't talk like myself because I'm at the New York Times. And you know what I mean? Like all the things that I thought <laughs> I had to leave behind in order to, to sort of go out there and be what my idea at that point of successful was. Yeah. So yeah, it was long. I started writing it officially in 2012. Um, and now here we are. So now here we are. And that's so beautiful to sort of describe this process as sort of a coming home in, in multiple ways, you know, mm -hmm. um, not mm -hmm. only were you physically back in East Texas, but your, your work, your art was sort of cycling back towards what, what felt like home. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk a little bit about the novel structure. Um, so it's very unique in that it's divided into three parts and there's a couple small character overlaps, um, but overall um, we're looking at different experiences of black women that are explored. Um, and many of the stunning reviews of this novel are citing the exploration of trauma via the body, um, tying these pieces together. But I would love to hear from you in your own words, how you think these three pieces complement each other? Mm -hmm. um, did you keep those commonalities in mind when you were writing it? Or did you sort of focus on one piece of a, at a time? I'm so curious about how the three pieces are working together in your mind. I think in my mind, well, no, I know in my mind that they were all ready in fellowship with one another. Um, so they were happening simultaneously but I still wanted each woman to have their individual moments, um, for lack of a better word, sort of in the spotlight. Um, mm -hmm. Because I was really, really interested more than anything. And I think that, you know, if you've read the book, if you choose to read the book, you'll find that my characters are really, really sort of, um, or at least as a writer, I've aspired to be on the page, a, a person who explores characters who are voice driven. I'm really, really interested in sort of the psychology and emotional complexities of people and particularly these women. And so I thought in order to do that, that each woman needed to have their moment. Um, mm. You know what I mean? Each woman needed to have their moment, but I do definitely think that the unifying force between them, even though their relationships might seem subtle, is that it's very purposely a multi-generational cast of women, right? So I'm trying to show women at various stages of life. You have Nettie, who is obviously a baby boomer as is Peaches, and then you have Eloise and B, who are more the silent generation. 
you have Maya and Troy and Katina who are more the millennial slash Gen X generation. And I wanted to really um, sort of capture the ways that things have changed and yet remained the same over the course of time. So you see these women all in various stages of their life, but you see the commonalities of the things they're still sort of all dealing with and the things that we as women and people will continue to deal with as we evolve. And I think particularly for Black Americans that I was looking at sort of the history and that's where the trauma and I think that's where a lot of um, the generational trauma and grief comes in and the ways that they have been affected by the course of time. And so again, how much has changed and how much has not changed? And how are these women um, choosing or not choosing to engage with their communities and the ways that they're able to perhaps help one another while at these various stages, which I think the latter part of the book is really more so about capturing the essence of that, um, really sort of um, saying how much, at least I hope, how much we all need one another um, and we need the wisdom, like and all of it is worthy and deserving of being heard um, and how much healing still is required even at this stage, no matter how much time has passed and how much of our history is still very much with us. I also think that I was very sort of concerned with how these women's were expressing themselves. And this goes back to that initial question of like having them all have their sort of spotlight moment. Um, I've said this many times that I've really wanted to explore that difference between the interior voice that we all sort of have, that quiet voice that not many people know, right? Mm -hmm. That quiet narration that we're sort of functioning and navigating through life with where we're all our own star and our own movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and, and the intimacy of what it means to share that um, with no one but these women are sharing it on the page. And I love the difference between how they're talking and what that voice sounds like with themselves and then how their voice sounds so very different when they're talking and engaging with one another. And that sort of, um, I don't know, that is something that I find really interesting because I think about it a lot with myself. Um, when I meet people, I'm always interested and wanting to sort of like um, get to that core, which is impossible and shouldn't be expected, right? <laughs> but I think that in fiction and with my characters that that's what I'm most, most trying to like get to at the end of the day is that sort of yes. essence of who they are, that quiet part. Well, I wonder too, you know, we both have backgrounds in media as a journalist mm -hmm. and I wonder if, you know, um, that background, that curiosity that you naturally have professionally about getting to the core of a person. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that informs your, your fiction writing. And, you know, that just leads to the bigger question of what other ways um, did, did your work as a journalist kind of like feed the artist in you? I mean, well, you know, I'm nosy. So there's that. <laughs> Nosy. And yeah, for me, I like juice. I okay. love juice. Okay. Give me some juice. 
juice, nosy, whatever you want to call it. But I think, honestly, like, I'm really genuinely curious about people. Like, I'm really, really curious. But I'm also naturally a very introverted person. And so journalism in me was always sort of like at odds. There was a tension there because I wasn't always the most comfortable sort of being expected to show up and like ask questions and get out of there, right? Um, But I do think I've always had a very natural curiosity about people. I have a love for people um, most of the time from a distance. Um, But I love you. I love you tremendously. (laughs) But from over here, but I'm loving you. I'm so right. loving you. <laughs> you know, but and I mean that genuinely. Like I love people. I'm so curious. And I think that as a journalist, that's when I realized that that form of storytelling maybe wasn't the best for what I ultimately wanted to do, or at least the most satisfying for me personally, right? Like, because there were so many types of stories I wanted to tell that journalism, at least the form I was practicing, which I was mostly doing news and political journalism, that, you know, it just didn't afford the time, the space, and oftentimes the interest in the newsroom, if I'm being completely honest. And so I, I quickly realized, like, the things I really want to talk about cannot properly or appropriately or fairly be addressed by the who what where when Mm -hmm. why is this important that journalism demands right Mm -hmm. but I also thought that you know at one point I thought I wanted to do something more of a visual medium when I first got to school I was actually a film major but I'm horrible at technology um that's why I told you I have a flip phone so I'm like (laughs) the best I guess equipment I have is my mind, (laughs) you know? So I think that journalism has definitely been a huge influencer because the the desire and everything that pushed me into that field is still very much there, right? It's still very much there. And I I would definitely say that it probably influenced a lot about how I approach these women because I wanted to approach them with a sort of care of this sort of complexity that I couldn't do because mm-hmm. space and time didn't allow mm-hmm. in journalism, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. You named so many, you know, when you're answering the last question, so many of your beautiful, wonderful characters. Um, and I want to drill down a little bit specifically to the women who anchor the three parts um, of this book and sort of hear from you, you know, what you loved about them, how you developed them, what meaning they carry. Um, Miss Nettie, who does mm-hmm. colonics from her house <laughs> and has a little gambling issue, mm-hmm. um, go into the back room of a joint called, I think, the Little Taco, Little yes. Grocery. <laughs> what was on your mind when you were writing Nettie? And in what ways did she delight you or surprise you as she was kind of coming into herself as a character? I love Nettie. Let me just say that first and foremost. I love she, her too. Yeah, like she was the first of this book. Like she set the stage. Um, she set the tone. Um, there's so much about that character I love. And I think she was really, really influenced by having come home and being in my thirties and being most of my peers, you know, again, this is a small town, everybody's sort of taken off. And so 
my social group became my mother and her peers. So I'm like in my 30s hanging out with a bunch of 50, 60 year olds and listening mm-hmm. to, and it was the best. Like, don't get it twisted. Like, I had a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, listening to them talk, listening to the blues, <laughs> listening to them reminisce. They are in this part of this region, period of East Texas, like the gambling casinos in Louisiana and the back room. Um, uh, game rooms it's a huge part of the culture that I knew mm-hmm. nothing about I mean I knew about the casinos because that's always been like that's where people go to have a good time but like coming back I felt like it's when I really had an introduction that I'm like my mom and her friends are like really into this and I'm like what y'all doing like for real like <laughs> <laughs> like where are we like <laughs> my mom was like <laughs> super diehard Christian why are we pulling up knocking on the door three times to get into into this gambling room like what's going on and so yeah like a lot of that um experience became very influenced by like their conversations and that energy and sitting around listening to a lot of the things that they talked about they reminisce on I thought Nettie in particular was important because she really sort of, um, when I say set the tone in terms of like what this book, I think, or at least one of the themes I think the book is really exploring, which is what it means to sort of be inside the body and exploring the body, being comfortable in the body. Like that opening scene with her where she's spending that time alone in the garage and then going to her mirror and sort of like self-examining herself and looking at the ways that age is is changing her like I think that she was so important to me and um opening up the places where all these other women would ultimately go in their own sort of like self-explorations um but Nettie yeah like I also think that when thinking about her, she's definitely a fusion character, again, of like so many of the Black baby boomers. And I always make that distinction, especially now, because I feel like that there seems to be so much conversation and contention around these generational wars. And I'm going to tell the truth, like, I can't. I can say on one hand I understand, but a lot I don't because I have so much respect and so much reverence for what they very uniquely experienced. Mm. And I feel like that when you start to understand the history, and I hope that the, the initial parts of the book sort of touches on that, you know, when they're talking about what it meant to integrate and what it meant to like be that first generation to sort of like experience that and the trauma that came along with that and that wasn't that long ago right Right. so I so I think that that's what Nettie did Nettie like really allowed the opportunity to show love but open it up to the generational conversations that I think are taking place within the novel as well as you know the larger themes body Mm -hmm. acceptance loneliness grief trauma all that Yes. Then we move into the part two um, mm-hmm. and we follow Maya's journey mm-hmm. uh, of falling in love 
in a very beautiful and consuming way um, mm-hmm. of having two children and then mentally struggling with the pressures she's under, the pressures of motherhood, the pressures of the news, you know, mm-hmm. um, seeing police killings of Black people so much that she is sort of um, pinned under. Um, and this part of the book, um, we delve into Maya's anxieties, her depression. Um, and I don't know that I've ever read mental illness sort of explicated in this very unflinching way. Um, we are very deeply inside it, although it's written in a third person. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a bit about what it was like writing this this part of the book um, and this character, um, especially because, as you said earlier, so much of this book is about like being in the body, in the skin of these experiences. And mm-hmm. this, I imagine, was very difficult um, to to write and to access. Um, so I'm just curious about that. So Maya was most certainly the most difficult character for me. I struggle with her the most um, for multiple reasons. Um, I've said before, I'm not a mother yet, or maybe not a mother. Um, I don't know what it's like to suffer with postpartum, um, nor to carry the sort of intensity of the fears that a mother might have particularly in the climate we've been living in which I don't think is very different you know I think that and by climate I mean seeing sort of the the level of black death we're being exposed to because of the social media and the way that it's being broadcast on the news by police and other people like I think those things have always been happening but now we're having like a front row seat to it in a way that feels um, traumatic and there's no words for it, right? So she was difficult for a lot of reasons, but I think that at the root, the thing I struggled with the most with her in particular was wanting to capture who Maya was and then showing that sort of mental decline without losing coherency for the reader right Mm. um because when I first started writing it like I had her like she was out there it was like very abstract like I wanted her because she is this person who is very much like immersed in the ideas of like esoteric um spirituality and ideas right like that's sort of the tie that binds her and Troy as different as their backgrounds might seem So there's already that factor, that tension between esoteric mysteries of the world and what reality and the human experience really is with the tension of uh, traditional religion, um, which you see sort of like her grandmother and her mother giving her different sort of ideas. Um, And then you have just the hormonal things that happen when you've had children and you're having postpartum coupled with the trauma of what she went through with trying to give birth to each boy. So it was just so much going on and it was, it was, it was a lot. And I was so afraid that I was not 
giving her her just due. Like she was such an important character to me and the one that yeah. I felt the most insecure about, but also the one that I held like the closest to my heart. Yeah. Um, but I think that when it came down to it, I tried to ground her as much as possible in like the woman who she was. And I think that the way her and Troy fall in love and meeting that version of her. And even though it might seem sort of subtle, but the relationship you see she has with Katina and 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 feeling like two small town girls, like I think that that kind of became the grounding force is like sort of her, the origin of like who she was, who she is and whether or not she can get back to it, right? Mm-hmm while also exploring like how influential like her parents have been. One of the things I found myself sort of unconsciously doing throughout the book is like exploring the idea of motherhood like across the board. So you do have Nettie who is missing her mother. Nettie's not a mother, um, but she's missing her mother. And then you have Maya who is just becoming a mother and struggling with motherhood and also kind of has a very, I don't want to say strain, but maybe not the most ideal relationship with her mother. And then once you get towards the end, you see Katina, who is the daughter of all these mothers, Mm -hmm. her own mother and Eloise, her grandmother, and what it means to be in that role. And so I think that Maya, in my mind at least, became sort of that bridge of all of the turmoil, all of the difficulties, all of the sort of the manifestation of like what it means at this point in time um, to be a Black mother in this world. And yeah, I mean, she was hard. I'm sorry. I know that was long-winded, but Maya. No, no, not at all. No, I'm very curious about everything having to do with that character. And I want to actually ask a follow-up question, but um, I just want to remind everyone watching that if you have questions, um, we're going to take them in a few minutes. So if you want to pop them in the chat, uh, I'll be looking to select some in a bit. So, you know, this book is very much, as we've been saying, about Black women, but there are also some beautiful moments featuring men um, in in this book. And um, in part two, you know, mm-hmm. it kind of closes um, with sort of a very tender um, moment between Troy, who is Maya's husband, and Maya's father. Mm-hmm. And I was very curious about that that piece of the story and why you felt it was important um, to this story to have to have that part in it. I'm so glad you asked that. Like, I'm so glad you asked that because I feel really protective over Troy because. I find that how do I want to how do I want to put this? Um, like some of the conversations I've seen around Troy have felt dismissive in a way that I find hurtful because I see him as a character who has suffered just as much trauma, just as much pain, and is dealing with just as much grief as any other woman in this book, right? And I think that what was important with him in particular for me was showing his method of dealing with it, whether that meant suppressing it, whether that meant being 
conscious of it, but choosing to be avoidant um, and channeling all of that energy into what his idea of some sort of like socioeconomic success might mean um, and being a caretaker, um, even if that meant not being an actual caretaker to his wife and family. Um, but I thought it was so important to have that moment where his pain, his fragility, his vulnerability was like acknowledged in a real mm -hmm. way. And I think that's what the moment between Troy and Maya's father meant is like having those two men share that moment together and needing to have that sort of... Um, crying breakdown yeah. um do you know what I mean yeah, like I he he deserved that and and so I think sometimes when I've seen some conversations sort of reduce him to like oh he's a street dude that Maya got involved with I'm like no like he's he's so much more than that I mean despite the things he's done or that he's doing he's a father he's a son he's a brother who's suffered incredible loss you know and I think that it's so important that we start to really treat that sort of like grief and the complexity of like black men's pain and what they're going through with the same importance that yes. we're treating these women characters in the book as well. So yes. Yes. yes, thank you for that answer and for that moment in the book that I very yeah. much appreciate. So then we move to part three and we get to yeah. know Katina a bit better. And Katina is like a doorway through which we beat all these generations of, of Black women. Um, and Katina is sort of the perfect lens because she is so young and she's the daughter um, to kind of learn about um, what those women, um, everything they've survived. Yeah. Um, through meeting the women in that part of, of the novel, what would you hope that the reader is gleaning about how the past and the present sort of mingle? I mean, I, I was reading the Lady Hubbard review and she sort of mentioned the word a haunting, that mm -hmm. there's like a haunting throughout the book and it's very acute in that, in that part of the novel. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little. I don't know, it's complicated. I mean, I think that Sonny definitely does represent like an actual ghost in the story, mm -hmm. <laughs> but he's also very much acting metaphorically um, for these particular women. Um, I think that what was fun about Katina's character, because I thought she was where I was able to have the most fun in terms of humor. I mean, there's a great deal of, 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 pain and grief going on with her and uncertainty but like anytime you're writing about someone who's like a stoner and drinking all the time and hanging <laughs> out with like her grandma and AB and doing like you know it was fun but it was so serious and again I just felt like it was an opportunity to again really best express all the ways that regardless of age and generational changes how much has not changed so when you see these women having these conversations and talking about the things they've experienced um not only like in their individual portions that are sort of divvied up in that portion of the book but also like in sharing with one another mm -hmm. um I don't want to say too much for anybody who hasn't read the book but 
them sharing and then them actively working at the end towards some real sort of healing, I think was ultimately the point and the intention and where I found the agency of these characters in that that is the bridge again. Whereas Maya was sort of like showing that we have the black baby boomer Nettie who starts it. We have Maya who's the millennial. And then we literally have the silent generation. And then we have millennial slash Gen X. I can't decide really with Katana. It's, <laughs> it's, she's kind of vague to me. But you see like that ultimately they all need one another. They really yeah. do all need one another. And there's something to be learned from yeah. one another and spending time and listening with one another and 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 uh, I don't know those characters in particular I think with the ghost and the haunting I do think it speaks a lot and I'm glad I was really glad to see that she mentioned that in the New York Times review because it meant so much to me that she really got it because that is what it's speaking about it is speaking about the ways that the past continues to haunt us, both our personal past and our historical past. It's very specific um, to the to Black American lineage in this country. And, and probably beyond that, but more specifically what I'm speaking to and what I know, it's definitely that. It's definitely that. And all of these women's circumstances, no matter which character and what part of the book, are all being definitively um, shaped by the external political situations, the economic, the social situations of the country and the circumstances of which they've grown up in, right? And so, yeah, like the haunting, I was like, I thought it was so beautiful. I really, really, really thought it was so beautiful. And it was, it was my intention. And it feels really good to be seen in the way that she got it. You know what I mean? Like it it really, really, really did. It really did. And so I think these women, the ultimate goal is to to free themselves and to expel the ghost, to rid themselves somehow or the best ways towards working towards ridding themselves of that generational trauma and, and trying to start anew if possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or whatever that means anyway, you know? Yeah, yeah. So there are some, you know, there are serious material in the novel, but I, there's also so much humor. Like there's so many um, voices and lines that um, were very familiar to me um, Mm -hmm. in a funny way. There's bursts of fun. Um, And in an interview you did recently, you said, I think most of my characters are a combination of characteristics I've observed in various people I've encountered throughout my life. Along, along with my own fondness for quirk. Mm-hmm. And I was just sort of obsessed with this idea, your fondness for quirk. And mm-hmm. I want to know more about that and, and <laughs> how you feel that quirk, that fondness for quirk is manifesting throughout the novel. I mean, well, you started it off. I have a character doing colonics out of her home. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I have a character starting off having sex with her husband with a pink colored flesh colored dildo and I have Troy making pornographic movies with very interesting names like (laughs) I don't know it's weird it's me 
I love things that border on the edge of absurd because it's mm-hmm. really, first of all, it's how I see life. Like, yeah. you ever just look around and be like, for real? Like, yeah. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, we got big ass balloons. Sorry for cursing y'all. But like, really, this is what's going on? We shooting them out and then we just going on, right? Like, it's aliens. We're just going on. I don't know. There's so much that just doesn't make sense. And if you've worked as a journalist, and even if not, like if you're really sort of like active in your communities and meeting people in the ways I love to, I've always been drawn to very unusual people. And it's not hard. It's really not difficult. (laughs) (laughs) It's not difficult. Right. And I love it. It's it's the thing I love most about humanity is like, and I love stories. I've always loved stories that have that sort of like huh you know what I mean because that's what feels most real to me do you know what I mean that's what feels most real or at least most interesting to me yeah those those sort of like weird quirky like the things that like most people may not want everybody to know about themselves but they do right yeah like that's what I wanted about my characters well I I I found that the the parts of this novel they were sort of like Russian dolls like there were stories Mm -hmm. within the stories like there was a story for every one of those characters in the game room you know Mm -hmm. um the story that begins part three um who's gonna like take care of the on who's gonna get the money and like all of those things like Mm -hmm. that was a story that I was like oh I could read that as a whole separate thing that's you know (laughs) yeah I appreciated that yeah yeah no, I'm glad that you yeah. got that, though, because I think that's important. And it's one of the things that I've, I've been really vocal about, you know, as the book has come out, is that I think it's important, of course, to acknowledge and honor the grief and the trauma, but also to acknowledge the humor and the resilience of these characters, too. Yeah. So I'm yeah. glad you got that. That means a lot yeah, to me. For sure. There have been times when I thought something was wrong with me because I feel like this is a funny book to me. <laughs> like, you know, maybe I'm just like too close to it. So where some of the things mm-hmm. don't. But even like Mama Eloise, like shooting and doing the thing she does, like she's hilarious to me. Yeah. That's yeah, not, yeah. that's not, that's, that's not funny kids, but I'm just saying. Right. <laughs> um, about writing about the body, how it feels, how it mm-hmm. looks, how it ages. There was something um, in, in what you were doing that felt familiar to me because, you know, my book is about music, but I'm not, I've never been trained musically. I don't know anything about that. I don't really know how to describe sound so much. What I was doing was describing how I react in my body, my physical response when I hear a song moves me, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was Mm -hmm. wondering how, for you, how did such attention to the physical kind of help you access all the other stuff. What do you if mean? If that makes you, any sense. Like, what do you mean when you um, say the other stuff? Yeah. The emotions, the the um trauma, you know, how did that kind of help to like reflect or or give voice to um all those other things that they were kind of going through emotionally? 
or even to set a tone or a mood that you're trying to 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 access you know I think that my initial thought you know as I mentioned with Nettie was always about um sort of observing the body's changes and being comfortable inside the body or at least acknowledging the ways that you're not comfortable inside your own body right and and I think that I drew a lot on personally like as I'm aging changes with my body and I think coming home and after having been away for a long time you know coming home once twice a year doesn't really allow you to sort of fully absorb the changes that are happening with your loved ones Mm -hmm. and I think Mm -hmm. that once I came home and I'm really starting to notice the changes that have happened not only with my mom and my family and my cousins who are little and they're now like practically grown you know um those things were like a huge, huge influence on how I was seeing how the body was was working. And I wanted these women to really sort of be in touch with their bodies, even when it seemed like they weren't in touch with their bodies. So like even with Maya, as sort of disassociative as she is as a character, um, she's very much sort of in tune with the fact that intimacy with Troy and having these kids and and the disconnect she feels from these kids and the disconnect she's feeling from the world is both mental and bodily, right? Um, And there's lines throughout the book that sort of capture that. I think that when you look at Mama Eloise and the woman she was, and then the woman we meet her as, you know, in this wheelchair, It's, it to me ultimately came down to sort of reflecting the changes of life period like what it right. means to change what it means to be accepting of that change resistant to that change um observing that change that we can't necessarily control um and and either being comfortable with it or learning to embrace it and mm-hmm. I think that that's sort of like a subtext that's working there in terms of how these women are sort of functioning with it. Because there's even a scene with Katina where she's sort of looking in the mirror at herself um, and looking at her skin and taking herself in. And um, and then there's mentions of like, I think Maya not wanting to look at the mirror and, you know, so... A lot of it, like I said, was very sort of personally based. It's not difficult to draw upon those things when I think about my own self and how I'm coming to terms with my own aging and, and watching those I love age and being observant and being appreciative as well. You know, so it's weird because one of the things I always think about when I was a journalist was that I used to find it difficult sometimes to be really sort of attentive when I was asked to show up and do something right. And I find my mind was always 
this, this, and this. And I didn't know if that was like a byproduct of just like the pace of journalism or sort of like where I was at that stage in my life. And as I've gotten older and when I started like really working towards fiction and moved back home and things slowed down, I started realizing like how much I wasn't paying attention to and what it means to slow down. And like, even when I'm moving around town or driving and looking at trees changing like there was a point in my life where I could probably pass a building starting to go up and then I look and like oh when did that happen you know what I mean like you you know what I mean like just not being attentive not being fully present and so I think to wrap it up that it's all sort of like a culmination of this desire to address all of those things being present being attentive being inside the body what it means to not be in the body, seeking always to escape the body, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Um, and the challenges of it, you know. Mm -hmm. Did that answer it? (laughs) I hope it did. Yes, yes, very well, yes, thank you. Good. And I'll give folks maybe a couple more minutes to add a question and I'll sneak in my last one uh, while we wait for that. Please tell me about this gorgeous cover. Just so beautiful and how that came together as well as the title, honestly. <clears throat> so, okay, that's with the title, I'll say this. I've only told one other uh, group of this, people this, that um, so each section is titled by a song. So like the first section, Yesterday Was a Dream, Today is a Miracle, is like a Billie Holiday song called Yesterday's. <clears throat> Lost Your Head Blues is like a Bessie Smith song, um, the blues artist. And then like the final portion is the one that I felt probably the most emotionally connected to and what I wanted it to be that sort of encapsulated the entire narrative. And so I thought, what is this really talking about? And I thought that this is a group of women who are seeking to be comfortable in themselves and, and... what it means to be in the skin and accept the skin. And so I thought, <clears throat> an autobiography of skin, like this is telling the story or at least one portion of the story of what that means. And when it comes to like the cover, I really wanted something fairly minimalist. Like I really wanted something that was sort of laid bare in the way that I hope that these women's characters are sort of I didn't want too much to can you see distract from Mm -hmm. the body um it was important to me that that sort of be like at the center and not a whole lot or at least too much going on with the cover that hides or that the body is able to hide behind does that make sense? And so that's why. And and I was just very fortunate and very lucky that the beautiful designers at Pantheon came up with my favorite colors because <laughs> I love purple. <laughs> like if I'd asked for purple, I probably wouldn't have got it. But like, who knew, right? <laughs> like I'm serious, that's how it works. But no, it's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. And I found the design. I love the body. I love the imperfection. I love the perfection. And yeah, yeah, I feel really, really, really grateful and really happy with it. Well, it's a beautiful cover for a beautiful book. Thank you. And it looks like we don't have any questions. Um, So 
I just want to say, you know, thank you so much for like giving me an early copy. Like it was my my pleasure to read it um, before before the world. And uh, it's been a delight to be in conversation with you tonight. You too, Donnie. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate it. It's I my really, pleasure. Really yeah. And thank you both for gracing our virtual halls, Lakeisha Carr. Congratulations on a wonderful, wonderful fiction debut. And such a pleasure to have you with us tonight. Donnie Walton, thank, thank you. you for doing the honors. And especially at such a short notice, many of you yeah. watching the call. Maurice Ruffin was originally scheduled to act as an interlocutor, but something came up. So really grateful to Ms. Walton that you could join us tonight. And of course, Thanks to all of you in the room for joining us too. We have posted the links in the chat with which you may purchase books. Uh, if you're in the hood, please come on down. You can also buy them at City Lights. We have them on display. Uh, pay us a visit. We're located in San Francisco's historic North Beach district. We're open seven days a week, Monday through Thursday, 11 to eight and Friday through Sunday, 11 to nine. We are slowly getting back the pre-pandemic hours. Also want to point out City Lights is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. We'll be featuring a special calendar of events beginning in May and running through to the end of the year. These are going to include live in-store events, online events. We're going to have poetry readings, historic tours, panel discussions, you name it. Keep an eye on our events calendar for pending announcements. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So take care, everyone. We hope to see you all again very soon. Please be well. Thank you, Donnie. Thank you all so much. Congrats again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.